Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet's good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you. If this isn't you, I'll bet you got a few friends with you in that position. So start a group, a Word Diet group. Help them get into the great Word of God. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Ephesians, my favorite book on Christian theology and practice. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Right now we're in Ephesians 1. In the previous episodes and podcast, we covered an introduction and then verses 1 through 6 of chapter 1. Spent a lot of time on verse 3, and verses 3 through 14 is actually one long sentence of praise in the Greek. Since we're in the middle of that, I'm going to go back and read verses 3 through 6 before starting into our coverage today of verses 7 and 8. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Now, verses 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. So, verse 7 and into verse 8 are all about God's redemption. If you had to think of one word to describe God, I wonder if it would be redemption or redeemer, the idea of rescuing and bringing back to great value. And that's what God does throughout the scriptures and in our lives as well. And it's going to be a big theme for Paul. Later in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, and chapter 2, verse 13, he'll mention it again. And it shows up in many of his letters, Romans 3, 23 and 24, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Colossians 1.13 and 14, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In those verses and here in Ephesians, over and over again, not just in the little passage we just read, but throughout Ephesians 1 through 3, we have the phrase, in him, in Christ. The redemption is always through Christ. Notice also the verb tense has shifted a bit, where we were in the past tense in verse 3, that the blessings have already been given. Here it's much more in the present sense. We have redemption. It's ongoing. It's been achieved in the past, but it continues into the past and the future. Now, this term redemption in the Greek means to buy back from bondage, to set free by payment or ransom. It's a reference to POWs or slaves. It involves both captivity and payment. Hebrews 9.15, for this reason, Christ is a mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. 
And frankly, redemption is harder for us to understand in our 21st century Western context. We don't have much, if any, experience with captivity or slavery. Once in a while, we'll read about a prisoner of war or think about it in historical terms. But what do we need to be redeemed from? And the fact is, it's our sin. And so while the contemporary audience would have understand this picture, it still has great power for us as well. Biblically, consider the example of Hosea freeing Gomer, maybe the best example of all. And then you have the greatest historical example, the Israelites being freed from Egypt as they go into Canaan, redeemed from slavery and bondage and delivered into the promised land in Canaan as God worked through Moses, defeated Pharaoh, and freed the Israelites up through a grand act of redemption. Every other phrase in this passage speaks to redemption in some way. It starts with the need for redemption. Verse 7 mentions the forgiveness of sins. Paul's going to come back to that early in chapter 2 to quite a bit of detail. Everyone has sinned. Romans 3.23, I just read, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is both an external activity, often it's sins of omission, of failure to engage in activity, and it's also an internal propensity to engage in sin. An acronym for sin might be a self-interested nature, and that's another way of referring to the sin nature of the flesh, the bondage, the slavery that Paul talks about wars against the spirit, even in the life of the Christian. It's doing our own thing. It's pursuing our own agenda. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have a need for redemption, and therefore everyone is or was under a sentence of death. Hebrews 9.27 People are destined to die once and then to face the judgment. Or the beginning of Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. God has intense hate and wrath for sin and passionate love for sinners. God does not compromise his holy standards while not frustrating his love. And the intersection of those two concerns is the cross, where both God's holiness and his love were manifest as the means of redemption. Second, in this passage, we see the means and the price of redemption. Verse 7 mentions his blood. The second half of Romans 6.23, But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isaiah 53.5 prophesied that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Or consider Revelation 5, 9, They sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. There must be the shedding of blood for remission of sin in God's economy. Hebrews 9.22, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Think of John the Baptist in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away, not just covers, but takes away the sins of the world. Now, the idea of a blood sacrifice, again, the contemporaries have an advantage over us. We have to just imagine that. They were experiencing it every day. But redemption comes through his blood, and it's just that simple. Unfortunately, for many people, it sounds simply too easy. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
And it might sound too easy to us, but it certainly wasn't easy for him. Was it easy for the Son of God to leave God's side, to be deserted by all, to be crucified, to be separated from the presence of God, to take all the sins of the world, to have God turn his back on him for three hours? And we hear it in his voice at the cross, why have you forsaken me? All we're asked to do is reach out and say thanks. And frankly, how on earth would you earn that kind of love, grace, and redemption. It can only be through grace, not our works. We also see the results of redemption. We see mercy implied in the passage and certainly grace. Mercy is not receiving the punishment we deserve. Grace goes beyond that to give us positive things that we don't deserve. Psalm 103 verses 10 through 12, he does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. That's the mercy of God. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Again, mostly mercy, although the passage also mentions God making us alive with Christ, which is part of the grace that we receive. Leviticus 16, the scapegoat chapter, has some wonderful pictures of what mercy and grace look like. And the goat heads off into the wilderness with the sin of the Israelites. Sometimes we're goat ropers and goat branders trying to prevent God from dealing with our sin and or our sin nature, trying to win the victory ourselves and falling prey to Satan with his attacks trying to put us into guilt. But also, finally, notice how excited Paul is about the extent of this redemption, the bounty of redemption. We're redeemed, we're forgiven, and we're given access to the Father. End of verse 7, end of verse 8, talks about the riches of his grace lavished on us. And this is for salvation and beyond. Romans 5.10, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Philippians 4.19, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. The word here in the Greek for abound means to overflow, which means you will see it in your life as it overflows. It means to super abound. It's not just a teaspoon or a ladle, but a virtual water park of grace that God extends us. And this should impact how we live with respect to God and from that overflow, what we extend to others. This is how we live what Watchman Nee calls the normal Christian life. We understand God's character and then the actions follow. Or as Paul puts it through his structure of Ephesians, we understand who we are in Christ and then we get around to what we do within the Christian life. Think about Acts 22, 8 and 10 as Paul shares his testimony there. The first question is, who are you, Lord, on the road to Damascus? And then in verse 10, the next question is, what shall I do, Lord? Once he understands who Jesus is, then the desire to follow Jesus in obedience and faith follows quite naturally. Or put it this way, to benefit from the circumstances of life, we need to know and rely on God's attributes, and then our hope is in our Creator, not in changing the circumstances. 
We start in the strength of what the Lord has given us, our identity in Christ, his character, the mercy and grace that he has extended, and this is what we use to get through life. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Ephesians 1 right now. In the last segment, I covered verse 7 and the first part of verse 8. I want to reread that as we move through verse 12. So starting in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who are the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. So the end of verse 8 has the phrase that kicks off how we understand this passage. It's with all wisdom and understanding. The key phrases here, verses 11 and 12, the purpose of his will, the praise of his glory. And then you have references to things we've already talked about. Pleasure in verse 9, being chosen and predestined again in verses 11 and 12. And then verse 12 has the reference to hope, which again, thinking of verb tenses, we've been in the past, the present, and now pointing to the future. Verse 10 depicts God as the Lord of history. Look at the phrase, when the times will have reached their fulfillment. He is the administrator of the ages. Christ is in charge of the events of time. And that's been since the creation. Even when we think history is going the wrong direction, we can be assured that Christ is in control. He is the Lord of history. Later in verse 10, he's also the Lord of the universe, of nature, of creation. The phrase here to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head. He's the unifier of all things. Colossians 1, 18 through 20, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Or the famous passage in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, Therefore God exalted Christ to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The phrase for all things usually refers to the entire universe. That's how the term is used in Romans 8, 19 through 22. There, Paul writes, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And that present time will end at some point. God will take his people, Christians living and dead, the church on earth and in heaven, and all of his creation, a great cosmic revival, and make all things right. So history and the universe both have purpose and meaning, and yet we have this word in verse 9, mystery, which means it's not altogether clear what those things are. Mystery is a term used in the scriptures to point to a divine truth which has been previously hidden but is now revealed. In the Old Testament, things were mostly hidden. They were types and shadows, you have God's character that is easy enough to understand, but many things were obscured in the Old Testament. And of course, there are things still hidden. We talked about predestination and free will last week. 
If God is that big, you're not going to understand everything about him. You might think of it as being a six-year-old or a 13-year-old compared to an adult understanding. You understand more, but there's still so much more that you don't understand. And yet we're called to love God and pursue knowledge within that mystery, to pursue an intimate relationship with a sovereign and eternal being who wants to be known but cannot be fully known. And we have to get comfortable at some level with that mystery. One of the temptations of legalism is to provide canned, tight-in-a-box answers to everything, a list of rules and regulations. And it takes things that are mysterious and reduces them to things that aren't all that mysterious. Get comfortable with the mystery, but still strive to know God as best you can. Despite his unknowability, we're still supposed to seek that intimate knowledge of God, intimate relationship with God. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we only see as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Matthew Henry says, In the meantime, let us adore the height of what we do know of God and the depth of what we do not. Now, there are many aspects of mystery with respect to God. Paul gives an early hint of what's most interesting to him in the context of the book of Ephesians. Here in verse 10, he refers to unity, and he's going to expand on that in great detail, starting in chapter 2, verse 11, and running through chapter 3, verse 13. So there is mystery, there is unity, there's also a God of history and a God of creation that are depicted in this passage. Probably the best way to end this chunk is to talk about 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. The perspective of Peter in that passage and Paul as he writes from prison are simply amazing. John Stott says, Though his wrist was chained and his body confined, his heart and mind inhabited eternity. As for us, how blinkered is our vision, how narrow our horizons. But if we shared the apostle's perspective, we would also share his praise. For doctrine leads to doxology as well as to duty. Life would become worship, and we would continually bless God for having blessed us so richly in Christ. Let's go on to verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians 1. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Let's start with the phrase, having believed. Again, it's expressed in the past tense, and it's a clear indication of free will, back to the back and forth of free will and predestination that we see in this passage. The clear focus of the passage, though, is the promised Holy Spirit, or what might be called the Holy Spirit of promise. Jesus had promised the Holy Spirit in some stunning words in John 14, verses 16 and 17, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. 
And then the amazing John 16, verse 7, very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Or as Paul writes in Galatians 3.14, God redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This was prophesied in the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. God gave a new heart with the acceptance of Christ's death and blood as a gift. All believers have the Spirit. We're told that in Romans 8-9, and the Spirit is with us forever. This is not the case in the Old Testament. Remember David's prayer in Psalm 51-11, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. The Holy Spirit would come on individuals for periods of time in the Old Testament. How amazing it is under the new covenant that we have the Holy Spirit living in us. In the Old Testament, God would be with them. In the New Testament, God is in us, living in us through Christ and the Holy Spirit. And it's better that Christ is in us than by our side. And that's the point of John 16, 7. And at first glance, this may seem incredible. The miracles, the teaching, the mentorship, all the great things that Christ would have brought to the table. And Christ was a great teacher, but his master's students flunked every test and pop quiz. Remember that a Jewish maiden scared Peter off just before the crucifixion. You go from Luke 22 to Acts 2, and what's the difference in the disciples? It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The analogy here I like to use is any sports figure who's great, imagine that they're also a great teacher, and that instead of just teaching you, which really wouldn't be to much effect, you still wouldn't be a very competent athlete, what if the great athlete could live within you, act within you? And that's what the Spirit does for us, informing and empowering us to live the sort of life that God wants us to live. It's far more effective to have Christ in us than Christ beside us. A number of terms used here to describe the Holy Spirit. First, that the believer is marked with a seal. All of us are marked with one thing or another. We have the mark of the beast at the end of Revelation 13. If you just read one verse more, you read about the mark of the believer, the mark of the lamb in Revelation 14.1. That's the choice that we have, the mark of the beast or the mark of the lamb. Here we're marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. Elsewhere in Scripture, a seal is used to denote security. Think of the tomb of Christ, Matthew 27.66. Approval, interesting passage in John 6.27. Authority and ownership, 2 Corinthians 1.22, and protection, Revelation 9.4. It also alludes to something that's permanent. I wouldn't use this as a proof text for eternal security, but it certainly by itself leans that direction. But again, that's a very complicated topic. So that's verse 13. And then in verse 14, the Holy Spirit is described as a deposit and a guarantee. The Greek word here means down payment, pledge, the first installment with more to follow. Paul uses this language elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 1.22, God set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And 2 Corinthians 5.5, now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. You might think of it as an engagement ring or putting a deposit on a house. 
In other words, the Holy Spirit is both the way we do sanctification here, but also our first taste of heaven, what it means to have intimate relationship with God, the Spirit-filled life with God on earth. Again, eternal life has already begun for the believer. We need to live like it. We need to bank on the Holy Spirit, who is the deposit, the guarantee, the seal, the promise of things now, abundant life, and eternal life, great things to come. Lord, may it be so. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet. In the previous segments, we've done Galatians 1 through 14. We had a lengthy introduction, including a lot of time on verse 3. But verses 3 through 14 is actually one sentence in the Greek, and all of it goes together. So if you haven't read it or read it recently, I encourage you to do that one more time before we proceed. A few closing comments then on verses 3 through 14. First is to notice that the Trinity is in action here. It's God's activity in Christ, repeatedly that phrase is used, with the Spirit's agency and an explicit mention of the Holy Spirit in verses 13 and 14. Notice also that most of the active verbs in this opening passage are used for God. Verse 3, he blessed us. Verse 4, he chose us. Verse 5, he predestined us. Verse 6, he bestowed. Verse 8, he lavished. Verses 9 and 10, he makes known to us, sets forth, unites all things. Verse 11, accomplishes all things. All the passive verbs are for us. We're being acted upon for the most part in this opening passage. The only things that involve our participation are verses 12 and 13. First, to hope in Christ having believed. So we have a part in it, but it starts with God's grace. It's surrounded by grace. It's ultimately by God's grace that we even can make those choices in the first place. And it's important to know that both justification and sanctification, both being made right with God and our ongoing relationship with God, both salvation and the Holy Spirit are by grace. They're by gift. Watchman Nee says, the one gift is no more dependent than the other upon what I am or what I do. I did not merit forgiveness, and neither do I merit the gift of the Spirit. This echoes what Paul says in Galatians 3, verses 2 and 3. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Another angle to discuss and reiterate from the opening of Ephesians is our identity, and that our identity is in Christ versus other things. In verse 3, we're blessed. Verse 4 and 11, we're chosen. Verse 5 and 11, we're predestined. Verse 13, we're marked with a seal. Verse 5, we're adopted. Verse 14, we're heirs. Verse 4, we are to be blameless and holy. Verse 5, in accordance with his pleasure and will, verses 12 and 14, for his praise and glory. And then finally, verse 7, forgiven, that's justification, and redeemed, that's part of our sanctification. This identity gives us value, purpose, and ultimately points to the need for community with believers who are in the same position. We identify in Christ, which means we identify with others who are also in Christ. And then finally, we might think of verses 3 through 14 as posing and answering two questions. How did we become God's people and his possession? Well, it's through his will and purpose. That's mentioned in verses 5, 9, and 11. And it's through the riches of his glorious grace, mentioned in verses 6 and 7. 
And then second, why did God make us his people? And ultimately, it's for his glory, which is mentioned in verses 6, 12, and 14. So to sum it up, we've got the true riches that come from God, the great spiritual blessings of verse 3 from chapter 1, and it's by his grace, through his will and purpose, and for his glory. So now we start into the second section of Ephesians, and it starts at verse 15. Look at the opening phrase there, for this reason. So again, that's pointing back to this long discussion we've had about our identity in Christ in verses 3 through 14. Verses 3 through 14 and verses 15 through 23 are each one sentence in the Greek. Both of them are rooted in praise. The fancy term for this is a doxology. Verses 3 through 14 was a praise for us being spiritually blessed, and it was mostly expressed in the past tense, albeit in light of present faith and future hope, but the emphasis is on the past tense, what God has done, it's already done. So we are God's treasure, we're God's possession, we're chosen, adopted. We have redemption by Christ's blood, the grace that's been lavished on us for the praise of his glory. We're marked with a seal, the Holy Spirit. And for believers, this should affect the way we look at ourselves, other Christians, and the potential in non-Christians. Now with verse 15 and following, we have a prayer that they would know verses 3 through 14, experientially, intellectually, and understand their reason for praise and their opportunity for powerful living. So let's start with verses 15 and 16. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. The opening phrase, heard about, is a little strange since he had established the church and spent three years there, but it's likely that the church had grown in size and or reputation. And remember also from our introduction, it's possible that this is a circular letter, that it was going not only to the church at Ephesus, but others as well. And so this would speak and give testimony to their character and faith, but more importantly, how that would impact others who read the letter. Verse 15, what had he heard about your faith in Christ and your love for the saints? So their testimony, others were talking favorably about them. There's two other possibilities here. It could be that no one would talk about them at all, or it could be someone was talking bad about them. And in this world, often we hear more about the bad things that happen. Think about a business that receives a bad recommendation. So the fact that anyone is talking about them at all is noteworthy and of course, noteworthy beyond that, that the talk is favorable. Notice also here that Paul is making an explicit effort to encourage them. It's one thing to have faith and to express love. It's a second to receive encouragement about that. When you see people around you who have faith and are exhibiting love, let's encourage them with that. Notice also that we have both a vertical and horizontal reference here. The vertical are faith in Christ, the horizontal, the love for the saints. And you really need the two of them to go together. Faith without love, love without faith really are at best hollowed out versions of the other. It's impossible, in fact. They go hand in hand. Think about 1 Corinthians 13. If you have practice without love, it doesn't work. Or think about John and 1 John. Basically, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Faith and love can't be separated, at least easily, from a kingdom perspective. We can, to some extent, distinguish between an internal, which is faith in Christ, and an external, which is love for the saints. 
And we could also distinguish between true and false versions of each. You have a faith that looks like something but really isn't when you dig down deep. We have love for people, but maybe it's just social convention or being polite to each other instead of something deeply rooted in faith and grace that we have received from Jesus. Verse 15 has the phrase, ever since, and then verse 16, I've not stopped asking and giving thanks and praying for you. So, this points to perseverance. The sanctification and the Christian life have short-run components, but they're ultimately aimed at a long run. The Christian life is not a 100-yard dash, it's more like a marathon. And here Paul thanks God for what they've done and prays for their future. And what does he pray for? Well, we'll see that in verse 17. For now, let's say what he doesn't pray for. It's not circumstances. In many small groups, prayer is focused on circumstances and often to change the circumstances rather than going through circumstances in a way that honors God. If this is the meat of your prayers or those of a small group, maybe take a week or two and don't pray about circumstances at all. Or if you're going to pray about circumstances, Pray that it be about going through those trials in a way that honors God, or that you would help others as you're dealing with struggles or as they are dealing with struggles. Not a prayer to change the circumstances, but to go through the circumstances better. So what does Paul pray about for them? Verse 17 says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Both are about seeing God's truth and knowing God better. The first is wisdom, which is understanding and applying knowledge. Knowledge is fine, but wisdom is better. Knowledge is a part of wisdom, but wisdom implies experiential. And so you can know things, but if you haven't experienced them, you don't know them at the level that's being described here. So knowledge is one thing, wisdom is another. And that comes through living life and the Spirit's revelation to us about how to live that life better. Colossians 1.9, Paul writes, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Or James 1.5, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. The second is revelation, a revealing of God's splendor and character, and it implies more than God has given so far. And while it's possible that this is altogether new knowledge or knowledge that hasn't been seen very often throughout the history of all mankind, it's more likely that this is revealing something that others already do know, that they have experienced and you have not yet experienced. There's a revelation in living life through the Spirit. Psalm 73, verses 16 and 17, the highlight and climax of that great psalm, the psalmist writes, When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God then I understood their final destiny. And ultimately, wisdom and revelation are in a Venn diagram relationship with each other. They're quite interconnected. John Stott comments on this angle when he says, how do Christians grow in understanding? Some will reply that knowledge depends on the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. And they're right, at least in part. Others make the opposite mistake. They use their minds to think but leave little room for the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. Divine illumination and human thought belong together. It is precisely as we ponder what God has done in Christ that the Spirit will open our eyes to grasp its implications. One application to parenting here that has vexed me for years, it's relatively easy to convey human and biblical wisdom, but how do you convey revelation, the means of the Spirit-filled life, to provide additional revelation and in this interaction that Stott has talked about. 
And I think the best we can do is to do our best to describe it and then to model it. What does it look like to practice solitude and silence, to pray, to listen, to dialogue over the scriptures, to get into the scriptures? We can't convey revelation. We can do our best to convey a method of seeking God and his revelation through the Spirit. Notice also how the Trinity is involved explicitly in this verse. The wisdom and revelation are given by God. They're given through Christ and the Holy Spirit, and they're given to us to know God better or more fully. Psalm 27, 4, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. The most prominent example of this to me, and sometimes controversial when it's misunderstood, is the verb to know in the book of Exodus. With all of the fireworks in the first third of that book as God is rescuing his people from bondage from Pharaoh and delivering them into a new life, the verb that pops up over and over again is that they would know God, the Egyptians, the Israelites, Moses, and Pharaoh. Knowing God is the goal of the first part of Exodus. And this is not just knowing for knowledge's sake. It's meant to be wisdom and an experiential sort of knowledge. The Greek word here means intimate knowledge, and God wants this for us and from us. We're called to grow in grace and knowledge, theology and application. And since we're made in the image of God, if we understand God better, we'll understand ourselves and others better as well. Paul's prayer for wisdom and revelation, not a change in circumstances, is at the heart of the Christian life. All right, it's time to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Purity, unfriend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to the Word Diet. In the previous segment, we did Ephesians 1, 15 through 17. Key phrases, verse 15, for this reason, which points back to the great verses 3 through 14 in the opening of Ephesians, which we talked about at great length in the segments before that. And then verse 17, we just left off with, Paul has started into a prayer that they would be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know God better. And he continues that thought in 18 and into 19. That's where we're going to start our reading. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. First, remember that verses 15 through 23 is actually one long sentence in the Greek. Paul is just building thought upon thought upon thought. And so in the English and in my commentary here, I'm just trying to look for convenient places to take a break within this beautiful text. In this chunk, Paul is listing out a number of provisions of God. Let's start with knowledge, which he mentions three different ways. First, the eyes of your heart, which alludes to mind, spirit, wisdom, and revelation, which he just covered in verse 17. The term enlightened implies, again, experiential knowledge and revelation. That they may know is a different Greek word here. This is more about factual knowledge. So along with the wisdom and revelation of verse 17, there's a call to know those things, which was implied in verse 17 and made explicit here in verse 18. You can have something, and we have great resources in Christ, verses 3 through 14, but you got to know it. If you don't know you have something, it's not much good to actually have it. John Stott says growth in knowledge is indispensable to growth in holiness. 
This points to the value of Bible study, getting into the Word of God and doing so in community. That's one key reason why I put together the book project, The Word Diet, to help people get into the Word of God. How else do you know and learn and experience the resources of Christ except through study, community, prayer, and the like? In particular, Paul calls them to know three things. The first, later in verse 18, is hope, the hope to which you were called. In Romans 15, 13, Paul writes, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1, 3 Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. The word hope in secular terms is grossly overused and watered down. It's not just a wish, a desire, or some high probability. It's not, I hope I get chocolate cake for my birthday. Or I hope the Cardinals win. That's not what we're talking about here. The object of this hope is Jesus Christ, and it's a sure and firm foundation. And this is not just for eternal life, but it does show Christ's control over death and eternity, which should motivate us now to courage, a proper eternal perspective, and so on. The second thing that Paul prays that they would know they have is a glorious inheritance, also in verse 18. It's mentioned six times in Ephesians and a few times elsewhere. It's a big deal for Paul in Galatians as well. Chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but God's child, and since you are a child, God has also made you an heir. Or... Back to 1 Peter 1, 4, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Peter's focus is the future. Other passages point to the now. Eternal life has already begun now. Abundant life should begin now. And so we have this glorious inheritance now and especially in the future that should motivate us today. And then in verse 19, the third thing that Paul prays that they would know is God's incomparably great power. He'll come back to this as the first half of Ephesians builds to its climax at the end of chapter 3. We'll see him refer to power again a number of times there. 2 Timothy 1.7 is famous in this regard. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Or 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Notice those words appearing as we've seen them throughout Ephesians, divine power, godly life, knowledge of him, glory and goodness. The Greek word here has the prefix hooper in front of it, which means to surpass, to throw beyond the usual mark. So this power is far more than we expect, far more than we need. How inadequate we are by ourselves, however, with Christ, our not enough becomes more than enough. And again, note Paul's masterful use of verb tenses. The the term called points us back to the past, hope and inheritance to the future. And the power he's describing here is for the present, the time in between. John Stott says, it is on this that the apostle concentrates, for only God's power can fulfill the expectation which belongs to his call and brings us safely to the riches of the glory of the final inheritance he will give us in heaven. Paul is convinced that God's power is sufficient And in what follows, he accumulates words to convince us. I'm also struck by the two key verbs here in verse 18, to know, and verse 19, to believe. And a lot of times we think these are 
inconsistent with each other or even contradictory. But the fact is that faith is the gap between reason and evidence and the inferences that we draw. Ideally, faith is based on the best available reason and evidence, which takes you to the proper conclusion. You can believe something that's not true. You can believe something that's garbage. So it's not belief per se. It's belief that is founded on reason and evidence. There's a Venn diagram intersectional relationship between those two that's ideal. John Stott says, faith goes beyond reason, but rests on it. Knowledge and faith need each other. Faith cannot grow without a firm basis of knowledge. Knowledge is sterile if it does not bring forth good faith. It is, of course, God's intent that you approach him by faith, and ultimately faith is required. Something as complex and amazing as the God of the universe in this crazy world he's put it us into with complex people. But that's not a call to avoid reason and evidence. God wants us also to use reason and evidence in the great minds he's given us to pursue God and an understanding of him, his world, and his people through that knowledge, through that experience, through wisdom and revelation that comes through the Holy Spirit. So after verses 3 through 14, when Paul is talking about what God did for us, largely in the past, you might think, well, he should have talked about what we do for God. But instead, Paul went a different direction. After theology, what we've seen in this passage most recently is the need for spiritual experience. It's not till chapter 4 that Paul's going to get into what we should do. Again, Paul's prayer here is for experiential reality based on the theology in verses 3 through 14, based on our identity in Christ. And then again, consider the verb tenses. We have the present and the future built on the past. This is alluding to a process and a process of sanctification, the fancy word for walking with Christ through the Spirit. And so if your relationship with God is stagnant, if your knowledge is not growing, if you're not growing in grace toward other people, then you're missing the point of it. It's not a check your box, believe the right things, get into heaven sort of religion. It's something that starts with that, believing in God, having an identity in Christ, then experiencing it through wisdom and revelation, and then living it out day to day as we interact with other people. As with the book of Joshua, Ephesians illustrates God's wish for us that what is ours legally would become ours experientially. Remember, the people of Israel wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Even though the promised land is theirs, they don't appropriate it. They don't have faith to get into the promised land. They had faith to get out of Egypt, to follow after Moses, to be baptized in the Red Sea, to accept the law. But ultimately, they did not have the faith it took to live the difficulties of the life that God had called them to, the fruit and the fight of the promised land. You can have something, but if it's not yours, if you don't understand it to be yours, if you don't live it as if it's yours, what's the point? The source of true Christian experience is the person and the provisions of God through Jesus and the Spirit. John 14, 6, Christ says, I'm the way. That's God's plan of salvation and sanctification. Early Christians were known as followers of the way. Christ said, I'm the way, the truth. That's God's word and doctrine. We need to understand that truth increasingly as the days pass. He's the way, the truth, and the life. 
What's the point if you're not living it out in life? What's the point if you're not experiencing the person, the provisions of God? Again, it's not just a matter of salvation. It's not just a matter of being scanned into heaven as if you have a barcode on you because you've you know, believed the right things. God has greater things in store for you. He wants greater things from you and for you than that would allow. One last angle here. It's important to place experience and doctrine and knowledge in their right places. In other words, it's vital to have the reality and the experience of living, and it has to be grounded in truth and doctrine. It's akin to knowing stuff about a person versus knowing that person. And it's those experiences we have, often in the midst of suffering and trials, that deepen that true knowledge. May we seek to truly know God through Christ and the Spirit. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.